Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. I'm Greg Ashman and uh, this uh, episode I'm really excited to welcome uh, Catherine Burble singh who is the headmistress of Michaela Community School in London. Welcome Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, it's an absolute pleasure. Just before we get going, what's, what's the current uh, situation with COVID-19 where you are? Well, I'm in school at the moment, as, as are the teachers. Uh, we've got a very small number of children in school, so not really more than about 30 or so per day. Uh, we have everyone social distanced and um, there is PPE and lots of hand sanitizer everywhere and so on. Yeah. So we have a whole system for making sure the children um, you know, are safe. Uh, obviously, we've got Normally, we would have about 750 kids in, so there's a big difference. Fingers crossed, we managed to come back full uh, in September. But right now in Britain, it's all up in the air about whether or not that's going, you know, that we're going to go back to normal in September. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so some people are saying, yes, we're definitely all going back in September. But others, we say not necessarily. I suppose it depends really over the next few weeks. So we've got another three weeks of school after this week. And if the various schools that are open. And if, if all of that goes well, then I feel that maybe we will come back full in September. Of course, all it takes is for one terrible yeah. tragedy to happen and everything will change. So we're waiting to see. We're, um, this is our last week of term. We have a winter break coming up. So we've got two weeks. We've actually had all our kids back for a few weeks now uh, because okay. in Victoria, uh, we've, we did have it relatively under control. We've, had a, um, a, a few cases over the last few days and they're a bit worried about that. I actually managed to go to the, the gym for the first time last night, which I was yeah. really excited about. You have to book in because so they can only have 20 people in there. So I had to uh, actually book a slot and turn up in the evening because I normally go in the morning and all that sort yeah. of stuff. So uh, things, are, things are, are moving, but we're all a bit worried about at the moment whether we might, we might be going backwards because of the ones we had over the weekend. Um, yeah, so that's where we are. Um, Michaela, so I, I want to talk about Michaela, obviously. It's a, it's a very special place. I've never been there myself. I'd like to come someday. One of, one of my colleagues visited you once um, oh. and, and came back enthusing over the place. It's, it's, a, it's a free school. Now, a lot of people listening to this will be uh, Australian. So would you mind explaining for them uh, what, what a free school is? Yeah, yeah. So it's like what they call charter schools in America. And the idea is that you are sort of free. That's when they say free school. You're free to do things differently. Um, so, yes, you could not follow the curriculum, for instance. You could do, oh, I don't know, there are free schools that happen on, well, there's one I can think of that happens on a sort of farm and you're met by various uh, geese when you arrive. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, you know, there are, are schools that do things differently. And I suppose the idea is to bring some innovation into education. Uh, and it also allows, the key thing is, is that it's a group of people who end up setting up the school. Now, it could be a group of parents or it could be a group of teachers. That tends to be the divide here in England. It's either teachers or, or uh, uh um, parents and the parents who set up a school they tend to then hire a head and they put the head in and then you know it runs more like a normal school I would say yeah. simply because parents don't have the knowledge to be able to do anything that different uh, yeah. to what normally happens 
But the teacher groups are, are, have the most interesting free schools because they have a particular idea about what they want and allows uh, a group of teachers to form who are like-minded. Yeah. And then they can try and deliver that vision. And of course, it's very powerful because in most schools, you have a variety of different people with, um, uh, with, with, with all different kinds of ideas about what works and what doesn't work. And, and so there's less of a sense of vision that might happen elsewhere, as you find in some of these teacher-led, not parent-led, but teacher-led uh, free schools. So our school is very much about tradition, uh, high standards of discipline. Um, we have the teacher standing at the front of the class and leading the learning as opposed to having children in groups and leading their own learning. That's the kind of Michaela blueprint. But then you've got School 21, which is another teacher-led free school, which is very uh, much the alternative. You know, it's all about, the reason why it's called School 21 is that it's based on the idea around 20, 21st century learning. And that right. therefore, lots of group work and, and all the kinds of things that I can't bear, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, I, well, what's funny, Peter Hyman, who set up the school, you know, he's been here. I've been to his school. We have huge respect for each other. We just yeah. do things differently. Yeah. So, um, and then there are other free schools, you know, there's uh, Bedford Free School. There's um, uh, Dixon's Trinity up in Bradford. There, there, there's Reach Academy. And, and all of these schools that I'm mentioning, they all have their particular brand and they all do a particular thing. And they've yeah. got staff there who all believe in that. So it's really powerful because... It, you're able to see what happens when a group of like-minded people get together who are really passionate about that idea and, and when they deliver it, the kind of impact that they can have on their, on their community. Wow. Do you think, would it have been possible to uh, have a school uh, like Michaela that was existing in the regular state school system? Uh, it'd be much more difficult, a lot more difficult because you... What, what, was, what made life much easier for us was that I set up with a like-minded group of people. Yeah. And so when I'm asking them to do X, Y, and Z, they're not fighting me on it because yeah. they also believe in that. Yeah. Um, and so, and what we're doing does go against the grain. So I know listeners might think, well, what, what are you doing that's any different? So what? So you stand in front of the class. Isn't that where teachers stand? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so what? The, the desks are in rows and they face the teacher. Isn't that all what all classrooms are like? And I would say, no, not in 2020. In 2020, it's actually quite alternative to make it so that the desks are in rows and that the teacher is leading the learning. And so when you're trying to do something that goes against the grain, it's really important that you're surrounded by people who also think in that kind of fashion. Uh, trying to do that in an already established institution where a number of people might be a bit wary of what you're doing, it's not impossible, but yeah. it would be harder. And you might not get the kind of um, the consistency that we yeah. get here at Michaela. And I'd say the same thing for all those other free schools that I just mentioned. Yeah. Similarly, for them to deliver their vision, you know, if Peter Hyman had me in his school, well, it'd be really difficult for him because I'd be constantly saying, why do we have so much group work going on? You know? yeah. <laughs> So yeah. who, who, was, who was Michaela? So Michaela was an old colleague of mine uh, from St. Lucia. She was a Spanish teacher for many years. Sadly, she died um, in 2011 of cancer. She was just, she was old school. She believed that children should be obedient. She didn't, you know, fear the word obedience. She always used to say to me, where is the rigor, Catherine? You know, she was always annoyed at the fact that things were just she felt things were too lax and that we didn't expect enough of children. And while, you know, lots of people who like our school will, will quote Edie Hirsch or they'll quote Dan Willingham and they'll, um, 
they'll talk about the benefits of traditional education and so on. Michaela, the woman, could never have done that. She'd never heard of Edie Hirsch. Um, no. But w what she was was just an old school teacher. And so the values that just came naturally to her are the values that we embody here. And it just seemed right to name the school after her. She obviously had a very big impact on you and, and you've, you've, you've clearly honoured her in a very special kind of way. So I'm imagining yeah. she must have been a very special teacher. She was great. I mean, you know, the kids would say, so when I started, I started as head of department, head of languages um, at the school and she was second in charge. And um, when I arrived, I remember being slightly nervous because I thought, oh, I'm taking this job as head of department and maybe she wanted that job and might it be a bit difficult working with her? But not yeah. in the slightest. I mean, she had been acting head of department for a year before I arrived. She was so pleased to hand the job over to me. <laughs> you know, and there's lots of teachers like that. Yes. You know, they don't want to become head teachers and that's great. They love children. They want to teach children. I think that's wonderful. She was fantastic with them. Kids would come to me and say how they wanted to be in her class because they you know, they knew that she was just a bit meaner than the other teachers. That's the, yeah. you know, and, and what that means is that, um, no, she wasn't mean. What she was was strict. What she yeah. was was she had high standards of behavior in her classroom and kids would know that they were going to learn from her. So, um, and that's the kind of thing that we do. I mean, if she were alive today, she would absolutely love the school, Michaela, because it, it, it embodies everything she believed in. Um, I mean, I don't know if you have, do you have any schools that are named after, I mean, I suppose without, individuals setting up schools in in australia you're not going to have that kind of thing happening um, I mean, we, well we've got interestingly um we're going to have a, a research ed conference in wa in um october right. and that's oh, in a new school named after bob hawke the the politician so oh, okay. <laughs> yeah so we do have it i mean we don't have um free schools or charter schools we did have okay. i think in it might have been in wa where they had these independent um government schools but I don't think they were quite the same model uh, and we certainly don't have anything like that in Victoria but we have a very large independent sector so in the UK all Catholic schools or Church of England schools are part of the state school system whereas here uh, they're not it's a uh, state school system is secular so all the schools yeah. that would have been like that there in the independent sector so we have a much larger independent sector but I think um, I used to be very I wrote when I was initially blogging way back in sort of 2012 and mm. I wrote uh, pseudonymously webs of substance blog I wrote and I, I was I was quite an, against uh, free schools and charter schools I thought we just oh. need we just need some um, strong um, education secretary to just uh, sweep out all the nonsense and just um, improve the state education system but the more I've uh, spent looking at things and reading things and being experienced in school improvement I realized that I don't think you could do that I think that would be too difficult and so a system that allows schools to set up and be like proof of concept to show that it can work um, is is what you need and because people will say well that would never work if you if you had a very traditional school where uh, there was high standards of discipline and the teacher stood at the front that would never work but of course we can point now to schools where it quite manifestly does work. And that's because of the fact that we've got free schools and charter schools in the U S and things like that. So that's right. So I used to be just like you actually, yeah. before I, um, before I got involved in the free school um, in setting it up. I mean, I had, when I used to teach, I'd sort of heard of free schools, but I hadn't really taken much notice of them. 
I didn't see the point of them. Um, you know, school is a school. You go, to, you, you work in your school and you do your job as best as well as you can. You go to another school, you do your job. I mean, I, I, I didn't really understand the, un, I didn't understand the value of having a group of like-minded teachers delivering the same vision. And yeah. um, like when you say, oh, somebody in Whitehall just <coughs> needs to come along and just wave a magic wand. Um, <laughs> it, the thing is, you have to win hearts and minds. You cannot just tell people to do something that's totally different to the way they used to and yeah. then expect them to do it. One, they don't want to do it. Or two, they don't know how to do it, even if they want to do it. Yeah. Three, they try to do it and they deliver it badly and the whole thing blows up in your face. So, in fact, the only way to bring innovation into uh, an education system is to do it through uh, free schools or charter schools because that enables people on the ground like me to then gather a group of people who think like me and then for us to deliver the vision. And then, as you say, what then happens is people come and look at the school and say, wow, actually, maybe I'll try this. And so, yeah. oh, there's a school called Q3 Langley, for instance, in the West Midlands. They call themselves the Michaela of the West, you know, <laughs> like, and, and then that's what happens. Bit by bit, these things grow and catch on. Had we never existed in the first place, that couldn't have happened. And yeah. we would never have existed if someone in Whitehall had said, you need to make a school like this, because that can only come from people on the ground, because we're yeah. the ones who know how to do it, you know? Absolutely. But it wasn't easy, was it? Like, um, I, I'm interested in, was it, would it be 2010, you were a deputy, a vice principal of a, yeah. of a regular yeah. state school? So yeah. how did you get from there to 2014 opening a free school? And what were some of the obstacles you met along the way? Yeah, well, in those days, you see, these days people set up a new free school. It's more straightforward um, because the country have got more used to it. So charter schools have been around in America for 20, 30 years. Um, in fact, yeah, about 30 years, nearly. And um, so a charter school isn't so um, scandalous in America anymore because they've been there for a while. Uh, it, it, in 2010, that was the first year that free schools were launched here. And there yeah. were a lot of people who were against free schools. Um, the unions in particular were against free schools because free schools essentially break up the, the monolithic hold that they've got over the school system. And the, it reduces union power. There's no question it reduces union power. So obviously the unions don't like that. And when I say union power, what I mean is the power that the unions might have to tell everybody to march out on a particular day and the whole of the school system shuts down yeah. because it breaks up the schools. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't be represented by a union in a free school. And it, yeah. it doesn't mean that your job is less secure when working in a free school. So the unions didn't like that because it undermined their power and they were very much, you know, they were campaigning, uh, you know, with their heart and soul to try and stop free schools from happening. Um, and they campaigned against us, but it wasn't just them. They were just also, because the unions did such a great job of poisoning everyone's mind against free schools, uh, a lot of ordinary teachers didn't like free schools and they weren't yeah. sure quite why. They didn't really know. They no. just thought oh, they're bad. bad. Free school. And whenever I talked to people, I said, well, why do you hate free schools? Oh, I don't know. They're just bad. You know, yeah. and, and your, your job isn't secure. They used to think, oh, your job isn't secure. They think, um, they just thought they were, they were up to something. They didn't trust them. I, I, yeah. Yeah, that was really the feeling. So we tried, it took us three years essentially to open. Um, and that was because we had a lot of detractors, a lot of people who didn't like us. So I was working as a deputy head and then um, I gave a speech at the Conservative Party conference uh, where I 
basically said the education system was broken. Um, now, I, I was very stupid. I mean, well, I say stupid. I mean, I was just a bit naive. I thought I could give this speech and then go home, go back to work and everything would be fine. Yeah. And you know what? I, that might have happened had I not spoken quite well. I spoke well, yeah. essentially. And because I spoke well, the audience liked what I was saying and they gave me a standing ovation. And right. because of that, I then ended up in the newspapers. And then because of that, I ended up being sent home. And then this whole, essentially, in the end, the, the press was so awful, I had to resign. And so I ended up without a job. And then I was told I would never work in the education system again, because I'd essentially spoken at the Conservative Party conference, and you just can't do that sort of thing. Which is um, deeply wrong. Like, yeah, you should be able to, to express, yeah, your express your views. Yes. Well, exactly. And frankly, I mean... I, you know, I'm not a conservative. I mean, I just spoke at the Conservative Party conference because I believed in their educational policies at the time. I mean, you know, I might be a small C conservative in that uh, my views are small C conservative, but that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily, I'm not a member of the Conservative Party. Uh, I, you know, but fact is I'd spoken there. So I was told, uh, look, go away for two years. Maybe you'll find a job in two years once this dust is settled. Um, it was mad. I mean, obviously I had a mortgage to pay and all sorts. And um, so I did some writing for the newspapers and various bits to try and survive. And then I also decided I was going to set up a school. Um, I decided to set up a school because uh, I love teaching. I love teaching disadvantaged children. I've always worked in the inner city. I just, it's my thing. Yeah. Uh, there yeah. were a couple of private schools I uh, thought about. And then I thought, well, I don't want to work at a private school. I mean, it's just not for me. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing against private schools, but it's just not my thing. If somebody else can do that. I'm really good at, uh, at uh, working with disadvantaged children, motivating them and getting them to, you know, change their stars. That's what I love. That's why I wake up in the morning. So uh, there was no option for me, actually. I had to set up a school. I didn't want to set up a school. Like I said to you, I didn't like free schools necessarily. I didn't know anything about them. But then I started finding out about them quickly because I had to, because it was my career that was at stake. So then it took us three years because I had people protesting outside our information events, uh, calling me names, abuse on email, racist abuse. Um, people would have posters, you know, placards saying Tory teacher and all sorts. And they would shout at me when I'd be going into a parents evening that I'd organized for local parents to find out about the school. They would infiltrate the meetings and sit amongst the parents. And then when I would be speaking to the group of parents, they would jump up and start shouting obscenities in order to disrupt the meeting. Um, at one meeting, we actually had to hire a bouncer because we were so worried about the violence that might uh, ensue. I mean, it, 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 I used to say, what, are we making nuclear bombs? I mean, we're just trying to set up a school. What is wrong with everyone? But the, were, parents, were parents put off turning up to these meetings? Uh, yeah, so parents, parents didn't know what a free school was. And while they were um, always interested in having another option, and some of them were desperate for another option because they felt that the local schools were not able to deliver and they yeah. wanted their child not to get involved in gang violence. You know, when I talk about the inner city, uh, just to give your listeners an understanding, you know, kids turn up outside of schools carrying knives. They, can't, they turn up on bikes with masks waiting for other kids. There are big fights that take place. The police are constantly involved. You know, this is normal life in the inner city yeah. in London. So, um, and there are some mums who are there saying, I don't want my child going to that school because he's going to get his throat slit, you know, like, so, or he's going to get bullied every day and he's not going to be able to go to the loo. You know, yeah. there's some real violence that takes place in these schools. So um, they, they were desperate. 
but they were also unsure because they didn't know what a free school was. And obviously you have no track record. So you're trying to sell something to them without any proof that you know what you're doing. Um, but you know what? I do think that the unease around what schools are able to offer is so great that it didn't matter that we didn't have anything to offer. There were lots of people wanting to uh, take part. Now we tried to open in two different parts of London. Uh, in the end, we ended up here in Brent where we are now. Uh, the other two parts of London didn't work out. And it's awful because when I think about those parents who had signed up, you know, who were really ready, all ready to go, they had their child, they were so excited yeah. and it all fell through. And it fell through because of our detractors who just kept campaigning against us and would stop a building from happening. Lambeth Council sold our building out from underneath us. I mean, it really, having told me otherwise to my face, I mean, um, it, it, it was terrible. The way we were treated and the fights that we had to go through, uh, it's the sort of thing, you know, you need to write, one needs to write a book about. Um, but eventually we got a, book, a building in, in Brent and that was, again, no thanks necessarily to any of the, to the council or anything. We managed to do this on our own and we have refurbished it. And um, we are now in this building, which is where I am right now. And uh, we have got a full school come September. So we, our, our last year group, last set, new year seven is starting in September. We've been open for seven years. Um, so our sixth form will then be full, you see. And um, we're now going to be full and we finally got there. And, and last year we had our first set of GCSE results. We, 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 they were excellent and we they did really phenomenal. well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, we have proved ourselves. Yes. But it, had, it has been a, it has been, well, what, we've been open six years. So it's been a nine year long fight. Um, it was a long time. You know, I got more gray hairs now than I did <laughs> nine yeah. years ago. I used to teach uh, just down the road in um, Hanwell, uh, Greenford Way. Um, oh, yeah, you told me, yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, so when, when you talk about, I know, what, I know what that looks like. I remember a colleague I worked with, she was about five foot tall, and uh, she was out on duty outside the front gate. And uh, a kid turned up, not one of our kids from a different school or maybe not even a school at all, with a knife. Mm -hmm. uh, and she said to him, she basically told him off. She said, put that knife down. If you do anything with that knife, your life is over. You're going to go to jail. Mm -hmm. And the kid turned around and walked away. And of course, she came and we had, uh, back in those days, we had two staff rooms. We had a, a staff room and we had a smoking staff room. And oh, uh, right. I, ne I never used to smoke, but she sort of managed to get as far as the smoking staff room and then just sort of collapsed um and oh, you know indeed. with the adrenaline and the emotion of it all so yeah, and I, re I remember the um the mounted police turning up um uh yeah and i remember uh, what i also remember really sticks in my mind is how rude our kids were to the the police when the police rocked up and yeah. how if we and we had to sort of mediate between them um mm. and they'd listen to us more, even though they were not always that pleasant towards us as their teachers sometimes, but they would listen to us more than the, the police. Okay. Um, I, I, there was a real antipathy there. I, 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 it's all, sorry, I'm reminiscing, um, but that's not what we're here to do. Um, <laughs> uh, you're, you're, um, what, what if just, you've, you've given a bit of a, um, an image of what Michaela is like, it's quite traditional, but a lot of people will never be able to visit, like particularly people in Australia, although they might like to. They'd like, what, what would they see? Uh, what, if they came on a visit, what, what would it look like? What would it feel like? What would they notice? 
Yeah, well, I mean, and anyone can visit. So they're ever in England. You know, you just go on the website and you book in. Um, and we are open. We get 600 visitors every year uh, from all over the world, and lots from Australia, actually, um, uh, because we are very different. And everybody always takes away ideas that they can use. So what you'd find is a very orderly school. And you need to remember that we are in the inner city. So what you just described is pretty normal business, you know, in the inner yeah. city here. Um, and what you didn't describe, because that's just one incident, uh, what a normal school looks like is lots and lots of noise, lots of running, lots of kids slamming each other against walls, lots of um, bullying that goes on uh, in corridors and in the bathrooms. Some kids who train themselves not to go to the loo all day because they know that if they go to the loo, it'll be so horrific, the experience, that they just don't ever want to go. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then classrooms where if you're a very strong teacher, you'll have them and it'll be all right. But if you're just a normal teacher or a weak teacher, God forbid, I mean, you just got <laughs> chaos going on in your classroom where they're throwing fire extinguishers and they're dancing around. And even if, if you're just a new teacher, not that you're necessarily mediocre, but you're just brand new at it. So, you know, you, you're just new. So um, that you got to remember that's the backdrop uh, because when I go, there's a private girls school up the road, for instance, I visited. And I thought to myself, well, they don't need our rules. They don't need, because for instance, we have silent corridors. People say, how can you have silent corridors? Why do you have to be so extreme? And they're not actually silent. In fact, the kids say good morning and good afternoon to their teachers as they go past them in the corridors. But, um, but what they don't do is chat to each other and they walk in single file and they walk very quickly to their lessons. And some people think, well, why do you have to be so extreme? And if you go to this private girls' school, well, of course you don't need to do that at the private girls' school. If you are selective, you don't need silent corridors, right? It's simple. But if you aren't and you are taking in anyone and everyone, then you are going to have really traumatic corridors unless you do something about them. Yeah. And, and you know, people seem to think, well, somehow silence is this dreadful thing to impose on children. Well, I mean, it's a minute and a half. They walk quickly to their lessons. Nobody's traumatized by it. It means they get into their lessons quickly. The other thing is, is that if you have a number of children turning up to school at 11 with a reading age of a six or a seven-year-old, you've got to catch them up. So we only have a certain number of minutes in every lesson. I don't want to lose 10 minutes of that time. In my other schools, when I think about my life teaching, or any of my teachers would tell you the same thing, you spend about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, before you can actually start your lesson. Because kids are turning up late. When they turn up late, they throw the door open, bang! And then everyone laughs. And then you're going, silence, silence. Can I have silence, please? I mean, it, it's chaotic. But that doesn't happen with us. Everybody arrives together because they're all in single file. They rush into the classroom. Um, you know, sometimes the teachers do things like, ready, set, go. And then they take their hand and they start writing right away. Or they just, you know, they get in and they start writing immediately. Or they stand behind their chairs and then they say, morning, morning. And they sit down and boom, they're at work. And it means there's no time lost. So uh, the corridors are therefore safe for the children. The corridors are quick so that they can take every moment of every lesson and learn, which is one of the reasons why we got such great results. People yeah. then say, why do you get great results? Well, because of the systems that we've got in the school. So, and we did those great results with kids who wouldn't normally be performing at that kind of level um, because we have a very tough intake. You know, we've got kids who steal mopeds. We've got police turning up. I've got, I got to call the police sometimes 
on the parents who turn up here and try and jump over the counter and steal mobile phones off the staff. I mean, honestly, the, the stories I could tell you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we are in the inner city. Um, and these kids deserve uh, a piece of the pie. They deserve to get a good education. And when they get into that classroom, what do they see? They see the teacher at the front who leads the learning. Now, this is key. So we've got this great behavior. That's the first key thing in running a great school. Um, because if you don't have the kids behaving, they're never going to listen to anything the teachers say. And then, how are they teaching? Now, I would argue that certainly with our kinds of kids, if you have them doing loads of group work, they're going to be sat around that, in that group chatting about who they fancy and what they're doing after school. They're not going to be doing the work. Um, if they did, and if they were really able to push themselves, uh, then great. But you know what? I think even adults struggle with that. Think back to the last yeah. time you were in a group in some situation where you were meant to be learning something. Did you talk about the work or did you talk about other stuff? Oh, how did you get here? Did you come on the train? Did you come on, the, on a car? Oh, well, did you, you know, that's the kind of thing you do. So um, we don't want to lose that time. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have any interaction. We do turn to your partner where in partners, they talk quickly to each other, allowing the entire class to express their answer because that's really the point of group work to allow children the opportunity to say what they think. But we do that in a very controlled environment where we say 30 seconds, turn to your partner, go. And then they go, blah, 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 blah. right, three, two, one, they're back at the teacher, hands up, and then they give the answers. And they've expressed it, they've done it quickly, and we can then move on to the next topic that we need to do. Um, and then that means that we're packing so much stuff into the lesson. All my new teachers, the number one thing they struggle with is pace. Their pace is always too slow. Uh, at Michaela, it's high speed and we're just running through stuff so fast. And that means that the kids, well, you might think, oh, well, they can't possibly remember it if you run through it fast. Nah, but they can if memory is your focus for the lesson. And if the methods that you use to teach them have memory as their focus. So, and that doesn't mean rote learning. People hear memory and they think, oh gosh, you're traditional. You want the children to sit there and just recite a whole bunch of verbs to you. And that's not what we do. You want children analyzing and expressing and, you know, pulling things apart and, and uh, you know, and, and, and really getting to grips with the knowledge that you've taught them. But you need to teach them the knowledge first. Yeah. Too often in classrooms, in a modern day classroom, we ask them a question and we haven't actually told them the answer. Now, I know people say, what do you mean, told them the answer? If you tell them the answer, then that's cheating. And I always say, it's not cheating, it's teaching. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it is to teach. You tell children what they need to know. You then help them analyze it and examine it and pull it apart and put it back together. You then get them to do something with it. They write an essay on it. They, they do a bit of turn to your partner work, whatever it is. All of that stuff that you're doing, the writing and the talking and the class discussion and so on, it enables them to learn it by heart. That doesn't mean they're learning it. It means that they remember it. So in a week's time, when you come back to that topic, they don't look at you as if you're talking to them about it for the first time. Because if that's always the case, that you're always talking to them about something for the first time, well, then you never learn anything at school. So you've got to have memory as the focus. That might include a little bit of rote learning. Maybe some rote learning of some verbs, rote learning of some history dates. Um, you know, there are some things that are great to rote learn. Most things aren't great to rote learn. Most things, you learn it, through analyzing and examining and tearing it apart and putting it back together. So that is what we do here. And we do that with the teacher leading that learning. If you, leave it, up, if you leave it up to the kids to do that, the kids, well, they're kids. 
So they don't really know how to analyze something that the teacher has been analyzing for 20 years because they've been teaching yeah. for 20 years. And the teacher knows what the, what the pitfalls are. The teacher already knows. Oh, Jim Appel, yep, two P's, two L's. You know that and you're going to preempt it because you know that they're going to make the mistake, right? Like, they, they, the, that's what a good teacher can do. A kid who's 14 years old cannot teach in the same way that a teacher can. And yeah. for some reason, we teachers are, um, I don't know, for some reason, we don't think very much of ourselves. We think that a 14-year-old can do the job that we can do. Well, I'm here to tell you that they cannot. And they don't want to either. They no. want us to lead them. So that's our job. That's why we got hired. It's to teach. So that's what we need to do is teach. And um, we need to teach in an environment which, where we can. You know, so I do understand those teachers who are in difficult circumstances in their school. There's crazy behavior. And the only way they can get the kids to actually learn is that they feel that they put them in a group, you know, give them a bit of a game, get them engaged in that way, and they'll get some better behavior. And I kind of understand that thinking. Um, give them a poster to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you give them some markers and then they'll just be quiet. And that's yes. what you want. You want to be quiet. That's why senior teams are so important. My job as a head is to make it so that my teachers can teach. That's my job. And if they can't teach, then that's on me, right? I've got to make sure that I've created an environment, which is why we have things like silent corridors, so that when they go into the classroom, that's the other thing, is that when you don't have silent corridors, the reason why it takes 10 minutes is that you've got to calm them down. They come in high as kites, shouting and screaming, and then you finally get them quiet, and then some kid who's late comes in, bang, and then everybody starts laughing again. Yeah. So, you know, I, it, that's my job. And, and then the job of the teacher is to deliver great lessons. And, and I'm, I don't feel bad demanding that of my teachers because I'm delivering what I need to deliver as a senior yeah. leader. And we're all working together as a team. I always say that we're a bit of a machine here at Michaela. You know, we're just pushing out together, you know, moving forward um, together. Like, you know, you know like in, in, in armies, you imagine, and they have their shields and their, and their swords and, and, and they're moving forward together. You know, so when the arrows come, you know, they, they have their shields and they hold them up and the arrows don't <laughs> hit them because they're all together. And it's like one block of wood on top of them, right? Yeah. It, it's a similar kind of thing. Now, people might then say, oh my goodness, she obviously doesn't like children. She see, thinks of it as a kind of war. No, it's not a war against the children. It's a war against poor, low expectations, against poverty, against uh, families who are unable to support their children at home because they don't have books there. It, that's the war. And, and unless you are all consistent and you bound together, like I say with those shields, um, it, it's much harder as a lone wolf, as a one teacher in a school, trying to do that on your own. Now, yeah. there are many teachers who manage that. Michaela, the woman, was one of those teachers who managed it. But it's much, much harder. When you're doing it as a team, uh, you're able to deliver at a much higher level. And, uh, and, and it's just much easier on you because, because you've got the support of your colleagues. Absolutely. I think... People have some funny ideas. Like when I talk to my daughters, um, that, that, that you say, what's your teacher like? And because they're quite honest, like my daughters are in uh, upper primary school. And uh, the first thing they'll tell you is whether the teacher can or cannot control the class. And if they can control the class, they're, they're approving of it. And if they yeah. cannot control the class, they are not approving of it. And similarly, I don't think any kids enjoy and. I've, I've seen that, that chaos um, in the corridors. Um, I, in a previous podcast, I was talking to Tom Bennett about the fact that I worked in a school where 
some architects had decided to put light switches in the corridors, which the kids could what? then switch on and off. Yes. So, no. yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So, that so is insane. It is, yeah. So, and, and um, so I know what that's like. And I don't think kids enjoy that. Um, and then the laughter when the kid comes in and bangs the door, comes into the class late and bangs the door, that laughter is not approving. It's, it's, it's nervous. It's about uh, signaling to your peers. I think kids really enjoy and yearn for an orderly environment. And I think it's this idea, it's a romantic projection onto kids. So it's it's these people that uh, have this romantic ideology about childhood having to be free and natural, Mm -hmm. you know, Rousseauian view. Mm -hmm. And they project that onto children. And I think it's through that process that they come to this idea that uh, teachers want to control students and they're all on a power trip it we we, most teachers there are some teachers who are abusive and they needed to be held to account for uh for that and 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 detected and thrown out the profession as quickly as possible but most teachers they they don't their first instinct is not to uh tie everything down if they could um teach in a very free and um unstructured way I think a lot of teachers would actually quite want to do that but they exactly. come to, but they come to this realization um, exactly. through the actual practice of working in a real school that's right so you're absolutely right the public uh, have just got the wrong idea about teachers they don't go into teaching because they want to they're on a power trip I mean, yeah. it's just mad. They go into teaching because they want to save the world and they <laughs> yeah. love children. And they, they, they imagine that they'll be skipping down the corridors talking about Aristotle and it'll all be wonderful. And then they come to the reality of teaching and realize, oh gosh, actually, maybe silent corridors aren't such a bad idea. And um, my number one problem is to get my teachers to have those same expectations as me. They would quite, they would quite happily <clears throat> have corridors where everyone chatted and and... They, when they come here, I have to, we have to train them to raise their standards and to be really particular about the kids sitting up straight in their chairs and, and looking at the teacher and all this sort of thing. We have to train the teachers to do that because it doesn't come naturally to them. Teachers don't think like that. They are not on a power trip. Um, and you might say, oh, well, obviously Catherine is on a power trip. Well, you know, I mean, I have to say, I'm not, I, I tend to be in my office talking to staff mainly. Um, you know, I see the kids and I do assembly and so on, but I'm not, I'm not the one handing out detentions. I don't hand out a single detention ever. You know, it's my teachers who are doing it. And I mean, so I have, I must be on some weird long distance power trip that I get from the idea of teachers giving out detentions. And the reason why they give out detentions is because they love their children. (laughs) And if you love kids, um, then you hold your standards high for them. Uh, And it's hard to hold your standards high, much easier to give up on a child and say, you know what, I'll just let him misbehave in whichever way he wants. Because if I put him in detention, it's more trouble for me. I've got to log it. I've got to turn up for it. I've got to rebuild the relationship afterwards. If I just let him talk, well, he's not going to be upset with me and it'll be fine. Now, he might fail his GCSEs, of course, but ah, well, that's not my problem. That's going to happen in a few years, you know. Um, It is an act of love to hold children to account. And... um, I don't come, you know, I have a meeting with my senior team every morning at seven o'clock. I am not having that meeting every morning at 7 a.m. because I hate children. (laughs) You know, I haven't dedicated my entire life of over 20 years working in the inner city because I hate children. 
Um, nor have I, you know, m m spent three years fighting the system to get this school open and worked so hard to get these amazing results that we got last year because I hate children. I do all of this because I love children and I also love education and I want to try and have impact on the education system for the better. And what is great is that 600 visitors come from all over the world and they take ideas and they go back to their schools and they um, implement these ideas in their schools. And then I get letters saying, gosh, my department is so much happier or my classroom is so much calmer or whatever it is. And uh, it's just really great because, um, you know, Michaela is about two things, really. One, we have impact, massive impact on our kids. But we also have huge impact, not just on the education system here in Britain, but but worldwide for anyone who comes to visit us. And, uh, and that's really nice. I mean, I went to New Zealand uh, last year, the year before, and went to some of the partnership schools that are there, which are a bit like free schools. Yeah. Um, and it was a bit sad because they, there was only a few of them. And um, the po politics in New Zealand are such that they're not gonna have any more partnership schools and it's much more difficult for them to survive now. And I find that really, quite upsetting actually, because uh, when I think of what free schools have managed to do, not just our school, but what free schools in Britain have managed to do in terms of innovation and having impact on the wider school system, it, 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 I can't actually, I can't put a number on it, it's impossible, but it's huge how much uh, things are different from before 2010, before free schools existed. Um, and I would suggest to any country that wants to really shake up its education system to allow for free schools, because it's amazing what, what, what they can do. Um, I mean, I know in, in Australia, of course, you've got this, as you say, large private system, and uh, that, that's because your private schools uh, allow for a smaller number of fees, and they are, they are uh, supported by government in a way that the government does not support the private schools here. So the private schools here cost so much money that most yeah. normal people cannot afford to send their yeah. children to a private school, whereas in Australia, lots of people do. And on the one hand, I think that's really great in Australia because, well, it means ordinary families can send their kids to a private school if they want to, and isn't that wonderful? And I love the fact that they have that choice. But on the other hand, I think it means that there are fewer people in Australia who are perhaps annoyed or outraged by the state provision and so there aren't mm. enough people. Oh, I'm sorry. That's our, those are our pips at school going. <laughs> that's all right. Um, uh, yeah, there aren't the, you won't have as many people who are as engaged with changing the system because if you can, if you can get your system, if your children can be educated outside the system, then you're going to care less about the system. Uh, people tend to care more about the system if their own children are in that system. So that's why, you know, the free schools that are set up here, only about half are teacher-led and the, the other half are parent-led, which means a group of parents who know nothing about education, and it's actually quite extraordinary when you think about it, yeah. have got together and have decided they're going to meet once a month to discuss what kind of school they want. And they're gonna put in an application to the DFE, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages. And then they're gonna go along for a, for a interview, which is a panel interview with six people asking lots of difficult questions. And then you're gonna spend years of your time and your money dedicated to, to, to setting up this school. I mean, and that they do that. We, we have that interest because every single parent who's interested in these Skippery schools who gets involved, they then send their own children to that school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a personal interest there. Absolutely. Whereas in Australia, not so much. I think um, there's a couple of things 
I'd like to come in on that. The first one, last time I spoke to you, I remember you talking to me about um, guess what's in my head. And I, I've been, obviously, I've been blogging, blogging against discovery learning for, for quite some time. Um, and yet I caught myself after that discussion playing the game of guess what's in my head with my physics class. And it's right. so ingrained, I think, like yeah. you don't know. So I'm going to try and lead you to it because of this implicit theory that by leading you to the realization yourself, you will somehow understand it or know it better than if I just explained it properly to you in the first place. And I caught okay. myself in the act of doing that. Um, and I know it's something that you talk about quite a lot. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, and the other thing, uh, just getting back to this idea, I, your head of science, uh, Pritesh Raichura, have I said his name? So he, he was on uh, Twitter and he posted about the value of drill. And um, I, I think I would, be, I would concur that drill is really important, like as a maths teacher, you know, mm -hmm. drilling the multiplication facts is really important for, you know, adding fractions and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So I, I'm quite completely on board with that. But... Uh, there was a real flashback moment because a lot of um, predominantly North American uh, academics in education then jumped on the thread and mm. said how awful this was and how uh, it goes against conceptual understanding. Um, and then when you point out, well, actually, Michaela does very well in GCSEs, which aren't just tests of um, factual recall, um, then they start railing against standardized tests and say, well, they don't prove anything and, and, and we're after so much more than success on standardized tests. And we have, that's obviously, the, this is North American professors making this point, but we have similar um, arguments throughout the education system, certainly very predominant in Australia. A lot of people would take that position. I've just posted a, a link to uh, the front cover of my new book on Twitter and some Aussie has said the title suggests that the message is known. The title is The Power of uh, Explicit Teaching and Direct Instruction. And this right. guy's the title suggests that the message is no more than kids are likely to do what you want if you tell them. Please advise if it offers more. Uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> what do we do, uh, Catherine, about these people? Yeah, well, the, tell them to come visit Michaela. And, and the reason why it's so important to visit is that. You see, if I had said, if I'd been having that argument about the school and somebody was saying, you know, uh, we want X, Y, and Z for the kids, I probably wouldn't have pointed to our GCSE results because I already know that they're not going to be convinced by our GCSE results because they think the tests are a waste of time. Yeah. The only thing those people will be convinced by is speaking to our kids. And the thing that you haven't been, so you haven't spoken no. to But the thing that is so impressive is when you talk to our kids, my God, are they opinionated. My goodness, do they know a lot. And the thing is, they are all the more opinionated because they know a lot. Because well, of course. you're able to form opinions when you know lots about something. Yeah. And so yeah. our kids, everybody comes here and says, how come they're so resilient? How come they're so ambitious? How, how come they, they, they just, they have all sorts of ideas? You know, they are like no children I have ever seen before. They are unbelievable. Now, of course, people will say, well, of course she'd say that. So then I say, well, come and see for yourself. Come and talk to them. Go and sit down at lunch. You will have a mixed ability table with kids who came here who had a reading age of six when they were 11 years old. Talk to those kids and then tell me that we are not doing a good job. It's incredible how, how thinking they are, you know? And um, 
The fact is, what is really sad is that these people who reject these traditional methods say that they are really, that they love critical thinking when they are not critical thinking thinkers themselves. They just swallow whole, wholesale all of the nonsense progressive stuff that they, has been going since the 60s. They never question it and they're not willing to question it. So they're not willing to step outside the bubble and go, you know what, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe I should check this out. If there's, some, there's all these other people saying that I've got it wrong, well, maybe I should look. Now, you might say the same to me, but you know what? I was a progressive teacher for many years. So I already know. <laughs> I drank the Kool-Aid and then I thought, you know what? There's something wrong with this Kool-Aid. And over years, I then figured out what the best way of doing things was. Yeah. And I now have a school which demonstrates that. So, you know, if you've always been a progressive teacher, maybe you should try stepping outside your bubble and just questioning because you're the one that believes in critical thinking apparently. So step outside, go and see something different. Now, the problem is, you see, the problem is, is that there is some poor traditional teaching. Yeah. So there are those teachers who, you know, I worked in South Africa for a summer once uh, in the middle of nowhere. And um, the teachers would stand in front of the class with an old textbook and they would read from the textbook and go, and then they'd look up at the class and say, is that clear? And the class would say, yes. And then they'd go back to reading. I mean, now look, we aren't saying, you won't find that if you come to Michaela. Yeah. That is a waste of time. Now, and so that is a waste of time. And it used to be that there were far too many teachers who did that. So progressivism came along and said, you know what? I think we need to break this up. Let's make it into a three-part lesson. Let's make it into a four-part lesson. Let's do some questioning. Let's think about how you ask questions and so on. All of that stuff was good stuff. It's just that they've gone too far and we need to pull it back. So when you're allowing children to lead their own learning, you've gone too far. Now you might then, they'll then say, oh, but if the children aren't leading their learning, how will they ever lead anything? Look, they're children. So when you have a child, a, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and he wants to pour himself some juice, you don't allow him to just grab the jug of heavy juice and pour it because it will end up all over the place. You teach him gradually on how he's going to do that till eventually he gets to the point of being able to do that. Similarly, if you want a child, young child, to learn how to say please or thank you, and you, you have the chocolate bar and the child looks at you and you say, he says, oh, I want the chocolate, he goes to grab it and you say, ah, 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 what do we say? Now at first, if you just say, what do we say? The child will look at you and think, I don't know, what do we say? I mean, he doesn't know, does he? No. Now, so the first few times you do that, you need to say, please and they repeat please and you say well done here is the chocolate and the next time you say please 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 and then eventually once they've heard it enough times you say what do we say now and they start and you might go P -p 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 to help them out and then they go oh please yeah, yeah there you go and eventually what do we say now and then they say please and then <clears throat> eventually they say can i have the chocolate please and huh, they're able to stand on their own two feet that is the beauty of teaching you scaffold and you get them to the point where they can do it on their own. Now, these people who think <coughs> that children can lead themselves in learning how to say please, they don't know what they're talking about. Now, they'll then say, but that's with a young child. With an older child who's 12 or 13, 14, they can lead their learning. No, they can't. They're still children. The fact is, they're children and they're learning something new. It's the same thing for an adult. If you're learning Italian for the first time, I don't care if you're 55, you, you might be a you know, neurosurgeon, great. You're great at being a neurosurgeon. But if you've never learned any Italian and the Italian teacher says to you, 
Now you lead yourself in learning Italian. You're going to say, but I don't know any Italian. I need you to teach me some Italian. Mm. <laughs> because you're like a child in that moment because you were at the beginning of your learning. Now, once you've learned enough, you get to university level, absolutely. Give them much more freedom. You know, allow them to do their group work. They can then lead their own learning because they've got lots of learning inside their heads. But unless you get to that point, and, and what is really sad is that because we're allowing them to lead their own learning and they don't learn very much as a result, they then leave school not knowing very much at all. And then when they get to university, they've got to do a lot of catching up because their teacher thought that they were teaching themselves and children can't do that. So, I, you know, for me, it's pretty obvious. Um, it isn't obvious to everybody and it wasn't obvious to me 20 years ago either, you know, so I get it. Uh, if you can come to Michaela and you see what the kids can do and then talk to them at break time and at lunchtime and so on and see how, you know, incredibly curious they are about the world and how knowledgeable they are about the world, um, then, you know, that might convince you is, is kind of what I say, you know, and there will be other schools like ours that you can also go and visit. I mean, I couldn't get progressive teaching methods to work very well. So I didn't, I, I used um, a form, form of explicit teaching, which I would now consider not to be optimal because the stuff I know now that I didn't know then, and I wish someone had just ta taught me from the start how to do explicit teaching well. Yeah. But what, what changed for me? So I felt guilty. I, I, I taught, um, I'd do a science practical, the kids wouldn't learn anything, so I'd then explicitly teach them. And then I'd feel guilty about that because they were supposed to have learned yeah. it from doing the practical. And um, for me, and I think this is where we might diverge slightly, based on our past conversation, reading research that confirmed that actually what I thought, um, sorry, didn't confirm that the, the stuff that had been told was to, that I'd been told was effective, uh, mm -hmm. constructivist teaching approaches, I suppose. When I read research that said that's, that's not true, those things are not effective, and actually explicit teaching is, is effective, and we, we can point to these experiments and this research that shows this. To me, that was a bit of a release to think, mm. oh, gosh, actually, yeah. I've been laboring under misconception. I'm really annoyed about that because yeah. I wish someone had told me earlier. But it was a, re a release. I could now just work at doing what I did better rather than worrying about it. However, I think from your perspective, uh, I, I, you, don't, you don't have a huge amount of time for the sort of education research, educational psychology stuff. No, no, no. Look, you say I disagree no. with you. I don't disagree no. with you. I think it's no. great that there is all that research. Absolutely. Because yeah. it should be underpinned by research, you know. Uh, and um, for people like you, you know, there are people like you who yeah. like reading research and yeah. really enjoy talking about it and writing about it and so on. And that's great. And I'm really pleased that you do that, each to his own. Yeah. I'm not that kind of person. Yeah. I probably wouldn't sit down and read loads of research. I like being out and about and, you know, and I discovered all of this just through trial and error. Yeah. So, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't read Evie Hirsch until uh, 2010. Um, and I was, someone suggested I read it simply because everything that I was saying about what was wrong with the education system seemed to fit with what, what, what Evie yeah. Hirsch said. You know? yeah. I mean, and I just come to discover that on my own. Yeah. We're all different people. Yeah. I'm not saying it's fantastic that there are, there is research for people like you to be able to uh, learn from, but also... It also just backs up what I'm saying. Yeah. Because if all I've got is, but look, these are my anecdotal stories of how it works, <laughs> then people wouldn't necessarily listen. So I think we need to win the battle, you know, against uh, progressivism. We need uh, examples of schools like ours so people can see the kids and speak to the kids. We need teachers like ours so they can see the teaching. Yeah. 
Um, but we also need research. We need people like you writing your blogs and campaigning in the way that you do. You know, I don't write those kinds of blogs. So I always feel like there's, I always feel like right now there's a big revolution going on in education. And it's really exciting to be a part of it. And each of us has our different roles in that, in that revolution. Um, and my role is a very specific role. You know, I'm trying to show what excellence looks like um, in, in an inner city school. You are writing blogs and books and doing podcasts and, you, you know, you're spreading the word in, in, in a different way. Yeah. But in the end, because we've got all these different roles, we, 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 are, we become stronger as, as, a, as a group. And, and what social media enables us to do, which is so amazing now, is that you know you can be all the way in Australia, yeah. <laughs> and your listeners in Australia can listen to this conversation and learn from it. People can get on a plane and come and see this. They can also listen to your podcast and read your blogs, and people can change their practice uh, through good practice that they find going on across the world. Which even uh, uh, you know, twenty years ago, not even that long ago, that was impossible. You know. Oh yeah, it all came. I remember it knowledge about teaching such as it was was all filtered through the local education authority and that was it Um, and or you could talk to people in your own school none of this internet and me being able to talk to you from the other side of the world and it's marvelous really that we can do that look i'm gonna um go to my my final question which uh is you obviously take a, a a very uh, strong stand and and anyone that observes you say on on twitter or social media will see you getting flack from both the traditional right and mm. the progressive left and mm. you i think i said recently that that, that you're you're incredibly patient with with <laughs> with all of those people how do you what what how do you keep that how do you draw that um that how do you find the inner balance to be able to uh, maintain that and, and and keep it together and just keep patiently arguing your case because I think a lot of people would like to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, I suppose I try and put myself in their shoes and I try and see it from their point of view. And I think to myself, I can see why they think that. They're not awful people. They're just misinformed or they don't know the stuff that I know or you know I I just I I do think they're wrong so I'm not going to say oh both of our opinions are equally valid because I don't believe that I think they are wrong but um I do think that they are capable of changing their minds I suppose that's I always uh come to any conversation thinking they might change their minds and who knows, they might say something that makes me think about something. So just last night I had a conversation with a woman on Twitter. I'd put out a thread, which I thought was an interesting thread about, um, about uh, teaching history in school and all this Black Lives Matter stuff. I was commenting on uh, what amount of black history is taught in schools and what we should do about it and so on. And I had a long thread explaining my position. And I thought it was a well-balanced thread. I didn't think, you know, it was on one side or the other. It, 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 was, it, it, was, it was complex is what I was saying. Yeah. And this woman came on and she was annoyed with one of the posts that I put up. And she was quite rude in her, um, her, her you know, she said, how disappointing that she said it. She wasn't nice about me. Yeah. But my reaction to her was to say, well, tell me what you don't like about it. And yeah. then she explained what she didn't like about it. And then I explained why it was I'd said what I'd said. And we, in the end, we had a nice conversation and she learned something from me. And actually I learned something from her because what, what she made me do was she made me think, well, it's true. I've only ever taught in schools with a large ethnic intake. 
So my point of view is framed very much, because she was saying, but when you're in a white majority school, these kids don't know anything about Africa, she was saying, you know, and she said, she said, um, she said she was from Africa and she said, you know, people think I got here on a boat. They don't think I came on a plane. And I was saying, yeah, but you know, when 20% of our children are leaving school functionally illiterate and functionally enumerate, I'm not surprised that they think he came on a boat because they yeah. don't know anything. About, they can't even read, you know? Yeah. So she was learning that from me because I was saying, look, things aren't necessarily racist in schools. It's just that there's so much chaos that the children aren't even learning how to read and they're not learning anything about Africa either. Um, so she learned that from me. But what I learned from her was to make me pause and think, hmm, I wonder if I would have a different opinion if I was working in a white majority school. Yeah. Um, would I think that we should teach history slightly differently? Now, I, I haven't actually, that was yet last night. So I haven't yeah. actually gone through that thinking enough in my head to give you an answer. But that, that conversation prompted me to see things differently. And um, had I just reacted to her, because she was relatively rude to me, had I just told her to go to hell, yeah. <laughs> uh, which lots of people, that's what happens on Twitter. I would never have had the opportunity to think differently about something that I, I think I know quite a lot about actually. And, and, I, and I tweet a lot about it. And there was a woman who, who isn't a teacher who said something that made me think ever so slightly in a different way. So I think if you approach all your conversations like that, now it's true that sometimes, like when you said with one of my things, you said you were being very patient on Twitter. <laughs> and I did think, yes, I am being very patient. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And so you do have to get to a point where you think, okay, you know what? You're now wasting my time. Yeah. This is silly. You know? But, um, and that, that's the thing on Twitter. You're trying to feel out all the time. Is this somebody who I can learn something from or who might learn something from me or who, who might not teach me something, but the conversation might teach me something, you yeah. know? Or, or am I wasting my time? So, uh, and, and that requires a bit of a, you need to try them. You need to test them out at first. And, um, and then, you know, I mean, like, I've tried to create on my timeline um, a sense of people being polite to each other. And I, I find my followers have kind of now fallen into line with that. And they are polite to each other and they're polite to me. And, um, and as a result, it means that you can have some nice conversations. And I, kinda, I really like my followers. And I even like my followers who... You know, I think I have a couple of followers who I'd say are a little bit racist. <laughs> I do think that, but I really like them. And I like them because they bring other things to the plate. You know, like, I don't want to write people off because they, they are a certain thing and so on. I'm just not like that. So I, there's just so much to learn in life. And um, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy those conversations. So yeah, I, I Look, I do get annoyed sometimes, but, and sometimes I even blow my top and then I have to go back and apologize. And I say, look, you know, actually that was probably a bit rude of me. I shouldn't have said that. Um, because it, ultimately, I suppose I believe that the only way we're ever going to move forward in life uh, as a country, you know, as a people, you know, as, as a school, whatever you're, you know, whatever you're talking about is if people talk to each other and is if they listen to each other. And, um, Sadly, at the moment, I don't think anyone is listening to each other. We've got Black Lives Matter who are shouting what they're shouting. Then you've got the others on the other side who are just not listening. And there's too much of that that goes on. And um, I don't want to be, I don't want to participate in that. I want to try and be somebody who listens. So I suppose that's, that's how I try and keep my cool. So modeling culture, I suppose, the sort of culture that you want to be a part of. Yeah. So our book, it's just out now called The Power of Culture. Um, and we, we talk about culture in the school and how we establish that. And 
it, it is very much about that, about us being candid with each other. We even have a candor star chart and, um, and about us supporting each other and forgiving each other. You know, I yeah. think forgiveness is a key part of this, that to, to recognize that the people who you're talking to, that they don't mean any harm, you know? They don't, they just don't know. <laughs> and um, that, and, it, and it's, my, it's my job, I feel it's my role to try and inform as much as I can, because that's all you can do in life. And then it's for people to find their own journey. And it might take them two days, it might take them two years, it might take them 20 years. But, um, you know, it would be a real privilege to have been part of, of their journey of changing their minds. Well, I hope you've been um, part of uh, people's journey with this podcast. You've certainly been part of mine. As ever, it's, it's fantastic to speak to you. You've given me lots to think about. Uh, I'm going to be listening to this back and, uh, and mulling over a few of the points that you've raised myself. So oh. thank, thank you very much, Catherine. Really well, appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you.